Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everybody, it's Susie Schuster in the Rich Eisen Home Studio. I've got the Rich Eisen mug as I take over just getting started for Rich. I am so thrilled to be here with you today, and that's because I'm going to welcome in, in a moment, one of my favorite people on the planet, and that's not hyperbole. You know when there's people in your life that you're just happy every time you see them, that you walk away every single time thinking I'm better because I spent time with them? People who are sweet and nice and caring and just dirty as sin. That's Jeffrey Ross, the comedian, the Roast Master General. He is going to be my first guest on Just Getting Started. Couldn't be happier on Just Getting Started to have my great friend Jeff Ross as my first guest because I thought to myself, okay, who can I have that I'll feel comfortable with, that will make me laugh, that will make you laugh? I thought, it's got to be Jeff Ross. And so thanks for taking the time to be with me. I mean, your schedule's crazy. You you were just in Paris, by the way, with Dave Chappelle. Yeah. How does one end up going to Paris with Dave Chappelle? <laughs> you know, I you mean, do, that's not normal. No, it was um, impromptu, to use the French word for impromptu. Incroyable. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I'd only I I was at Bob Saget's funeral, and Dave was there, and we were emotional, and he had to leave, and I didn't. He didn't want to leave, and we weren't done uh, mourning yet, obviously. And he said, hey, I'm going to go to Paris tomorrow. It's Fashion Week. I'm going to do some pop-up shows. Um, Do you want to come? And we could just leave tomorrow. And uh, I said, you know what? I need one day to hug my dog, to regroup, uh, and I'll meet you there in two days. And that's what I did. We did uh, five shows in Paris. I, I thought, what a chance to be an American comic roasting Parisians. And I think COVID kind of zapped the snobbiness out of Paris. <laughs> Everybody was very down to earth. And um, we had a lot of friends there. Uh, Talib and Most Def were there doing Black Star. And Kanye was there. And the Olsen twins were there. And my pal Simon Rex had his movie opening there. And we were surrounded by friends and we talked about Bob on stage in Paris, which was kind of fun. Um, and the whole thing was a nice, well, much needed change of scenery. And, um, you know, you know, we all mourn in our own ways. So why not do it over some fresh croissants and Angeline? And what was the place you recommended? Angelina. Angelina. Oh, my God. That food was good. Their hot chocolate is epic. I mean, you said two names that go together, the Olsen twins and Kanye West, because when I think of Paris and friends, I think of Kanye West and the Olsen twins. That did happen. We were in the back of the van, me, Mary, Kate, and Ashley, they're old friends. And and Dave did pump up uh, that song, Mary, Kate, and Ashley, you know, the, um, the Paris song. And it was so classic. Uh, it was a great time. 
bought everything was on sale. Uh, bought a bunch of clothes. Plus, you get all tax free at the airport. You hand them your receipts, and they credit you back like twelve percent on everything you buy. So they say the French are anti-Semitic. They really cater to the Jewish uh, deal maker in me. I, <laughs> I really enjoyed shopping there, and uh, I hadn't been there since I was eighteen. I, you know, in a youth hostel backpacking after my dad died, which is Come to think of it, I just realized, I guess I go to Paris after big losses. You know, I want to talk about Bob because the reason why I had you on, in all honesty, was that we spent so much time together when Bob died. And we talked, and I reached out to you to make sure you were okay. Uh, we both felt a tremendous loss, you more than we, because you were so close to him. Rich and I loved him. I mean, we were friends with him for 20 years, but you were friends with him even longer. What's your first memory of Bob Saget? My first memory, um, I never watched him as a kid. I didn't watch him full house. None of that added up for me. It wasn't until later that I realized the impact he had around the world. I knew him as a nightclub comic. I knew him as a legend that you'd see his picture around the comedy store. So around when the Aristocrats documentary came out, him and I really became closer because we, we, we found ourselves side by side doing press together, talking about free speech and the First Amendment. And, uh, there were various events on both coasts and the movie got really hot really quick. And And I remember... Our friendship sealed one day at a screening, a very hoity-toity screening in New York that uh, my friend uh, Robin Bronk, who runs the Creative Coalition, a nonpartisan arts group, um, she held for the aristocrats. And it's a crowded theater. All the, you know, fancy New Yorkers are there writing about it, reviewing it. And they had some of the cast there. And, and Bob is probably the biggest star there and he's sitting next to me and Robin is making a very passionate speech to everyone about the importance of the first amendment and free speech and the, the, the very foundation that America is built on. And right in the middle of her speech, um, and don't forget, this is a very irreverent movie and, but she really took it to a very classy place and right in the middle of her speech, Bob whispers in my ear, Yell out, show us your tits. <laughs> <laughs> and he's Bob Saget. Yeah. I wanted him to be my friend. And he, so I just did what he said. I yelled, show us your tits. And Robin fell on the floor laughing. The room broke up. All the tension was released. And we started to really understand not just Bob, but what the movie meant, which is taking things that are sacred and flipping them upside down and inside out and making comedy of it. And nothing is too uh, fragile to make fun of. And since then, Robin became our very good friend. And and uh, and I started to really love Bob because he trusted me with that moment. I trusted him. And uh, ever since then, we would do all sorts of adventures together. We would travel together. We would eat together. We had many fun meals with you, Susie. Um, and uh there was no one more fun at a dinner table than Bob. He used nonstop jokes and always knew what to order and what restaurant. And, you know, he'd call me up at, you know, 
5.30 in the afternoon and say, meet emergency. I need some beef ribs. Meet me at the Brentwood in 45 minutes. I'm like, Bob, I'm in Hollywood. You got to give me. He's like, no, 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 you can make it. I mapped it out. Let's go. I got a reservation. They got one rack left. Let's go. <laughs> and it was almost like I put a siren on the top of my car and we had a, a meat emergency. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. I mean, what's more emergency driven than meat? I mean, let's face uh, it. Like, and, and his, his dad worked in the meat business and my dad was a kosher caterer. So we would bond over meat stories. I remember one night going to Craig's with you guys, and when we went home, I said to Rich, I feel like I had a workout, because it was literally like an intellectual workout going to dinner with Bob, because the jokes would fly so fast and so furious, and he's, again, so irreverent that sometimes you'd feel almost exhausted after a dinner. <laughs> Bob did all the talking, and that was a fun thing. And, and, and you know, when it was just me and him, you know, he had this patriarchal quality about him. He was a dad on TV. He was America's dad. He had three daughters uh, of his own. And when it was just me and him, I always had this thing with him. I'd buy him dinner and I'd get the check. And he loved that because no one ever really bought him dinner. He was always expected to buy because he was the, the rich guy. But, you know, we all have expenses and he had a lot of uh, overhead and a lot of uh, uh, a lot of people to take care of. So uh, my sister, Robin, is a special ed teacher on Bainbridge Island up in Washington State. And she called me uh, right after Bob passed. And she said, of all the people you've ever introduced me to, which is many, Bob was the nicest. Well, he was the kindest. And I think that. One thing that people didn't realize about him because they either heard my dog licks my balls, they heard something so ridiculous, or they saw him as Danny Tanner. What I think was so crazy about him is very few people really knew him. And those of us that were lucky enough to be in the inner sanctum knew a person who was extraordinarily kind, was an incredible dad. You know, he and I bonded over his daughter's migraines. That's how we became such good friends. I met him through Jonathan Silverman, the actor. Right. And I had mentioned that I had a migraine. He told me all about his daughter, and that's how we bonded. And he never forgot it. He always reminded me 20 years later, you know, you helped me with my daughter all that time ago. And one thing that I've taken from Bob's passing almost more than anything is the need to tell people that you love them. At the end of a conversation, I thought, I think it was at you or was it John Stamos at the memorial who said, everybody get out your, your phones and look and see your last text from Bob. And what does it say at the end? It said, I love you. And, you know, these days, don't you need to hear that even more than ever? We do. And especially during a pandemic, you know, Bob's podcast was called I'm Here For You. And he really was. Um, that was John who said that at the moment. To be honest, Susie, I haven't been able to look at my text from Bob because I'm just not there yet. I haven't been able to watch any video. I landed back from Paris and, you know, this is everywhere. And it, 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 it's like it's not real to me. It's still like a cartoony version, like he's playing dead. Um, and I talked to Dave Coulier today. I talked to Stamos last night. Um, none of us have really let him go yet. You know, you're supposed to mourn and move on. I've experienced a lot of loss, and that's something that I bonded with 
Bob on over early on. You know, we both were, he lost his sisters. I lost my parents, you know, at a young age. And, and we would talk through these things. We're built as human beings to mourn and then move on. And I haven't quite got to the moving on phase of this yet. I hadn't lost a, I'd lost really good friends, but no one that I relied on quite like Bob. If you needed a recommendation, a doctor, a lawyer, a uh, real estate, he he understood the business. Um, um, breakups, you know, he would he showed up at my house once at two in the morning, took me to Astro Burger for a pastrami sandwich. And, you know, after a bad breakup, and I'm crying over my pastrami sandwich in his Lexus. And, you know, Bob gave me a pep talk that lasted longer than the whole relationship I was crying about. <laughs> you know, he really was a good, solid friend. And let's face it, he had every chance to be some Hollywood phony, and he never did it. He had every chance to be some bitter asshole, and he never did it. Um, you know, the life kind of yanked him a few times with, with loss, and, and he, he kept punching and he kept working, working and making people laugh and bringing joy to people. And I guess we're all a little older and a little wiser having known Bob. How do you think comedy will help you mourn? It immediately was therapeutic for me. Um, the very next night after his, that's a good question, by the way, because I, I also asked myself that question. The night after his funeral, which you were at, um, John Mayer texted me and Dave Chappelle and said, you know, Dave asking Dave to stay another day um, so that we could um, do a impromptu, what I called a punk rock shiva in the little tiny 50-seat belly room at the comedy store. And, and that's what we did. And I said to myself, you know, I remember after my old dog, Nana, the old German shepherd died few months ago, I remember sitting here with the puppy going, now what do I do? Just sit in the house and cry? And I thought, you know what? Why don't I just pack up this puppy and go to one of these outdoor comedy spots and just talk about it? And, and when this happened with Bob, I thought to myself, at first I was like, I don't want to go to the comedy store. I don't want, I, I can't face the girls crying. I can't face Bob's daughters um, and, and, and Kelly, his wife, crying. But then I thought, you know what? I've never gone on stage and regretted it. I've never gone on stage. Even decades ago when my grandfather died, I waited a week and then I went on stage and I felt a little better. It, it fortifies you to share it, to tell stories. And I went up, I went up last night uh, at the comedy store and I told some Bob jokes and some Bob stories. And that made me feel a lot better pretty quickly. Um, yeah, I said, you know, you might have you might have heard that uh, our friend John Mayer very generously paid for a private jet to fly Bob's home, body home from the road where he died. I said, what you might not know is that I paid for the Goodyear blimp to fly Louis Anderson's body home <laughs> when he died. So when you're in the comedy store, this temple of free speech. Like, it's just a release of the tension, a release of the sadness, and you start to laugh 
through your pain. And I always say to myself, if I don't laugh, I cry. So I try to keep, I try to keep um, my sense of humor intact through these things. It also feels like my role in, 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 in life is to try to use my experience with loss to help people get through it. I'm curious, and this is called Just Getting Started, so this is the perfect segue. How old were you when you realized that you had a gift for comedy or that you were attracted to comedy? When was the first time you had an inclination, this is pretty great? When I, at 48 years old, I was like, I think I'm, I think I'm, <laughs> I think I'm going to stick with this. <laughs> so last night I thought to myself, hey, kid, I got a career. <laughs> you know, I didn't see it. It was my pal, Mark Chapin, my college buddy. Two years after college, I was going through a rough time. My grandfather and I were living together. My you know, sort of on my own. My parents were long gone. And, and I was with my grandfather, who was very sick, and I was taking care of him. And my college buddy said, you should take this comedy class. It's over by Port Authority. It's on your way home from your day job. And I think you'd be good at it. And he gave me a couple examples of me making him laugh over the years, just being silly. And he's like, oh, you know, maybe you'll meet a chick there. Maybe you'll get a little social life out of it. And, I think you'd be good at it. So I didn't understand any of that. I didn't want to be a comic. I didn't understand that that was even something you could do. I thought comics were old guys in tuxedos up in the Catskills or on Johnny Carson shows. So it took someone else motivating me to get started. And I'm very grateful to my friend Mark. We're still very, very, very close pals and talk all the time. But once I started doing it, I remember doing it, you know, getting a few of those laughs. And at that point in the beginning, you're like trying to piece together an act. And and somebody came up to me after some crappy little gig in New Jersey, you know, decades ago. She says, my husband is, you know, we had so much fun. He has cancer. I haven't heard him laugh like that in so long. And I was just it's like, wow. So this is bigger than me. This is bigger than what I'm getting paid, what they're going to, what, what I can order from the kitchen, what my name looks like in the, in the, on the marquee. This is so much bigger than all that, that I realized that there was a healing quality to even body humor. And there was a long time in there. I mean, if this is about getting started, then I'll tell you, there was a long time in there where I told people, yeah, I'm doing stand-up comedy. And they'd say stuff like, well, you'll figure out life. You'll figure something out. It was like I got dismissed as, as a quack. Like that, you know, no nice Jewish boy with a college education was going to be a comic. It didn't make sense uh, in the, you know, early 90s, 1989, 90. Um, so part of it is somebody else pushing you. And then part of it is, you see you yourself as an entertainer, as an artist, seeing the good that it can bring people. And since then, forget it. It's like Dave Chappelle says, you want to go to Paris. What American comics, you can probably count them on one hand who've done stand-up in Paris. So to me, it's been a backstage pass to the world. I get to see and 
things I never get to see. Uh, I got to meet Rich Eisen on a street corner after 9-11. I got to uh, go to Super Bowls and, and, and I got to go to uh, embassies all over the world uh, on USO tours to war zones, meet the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I met the last few presidents. Um, it's been a really great ride. What do you tell the kid who was leaving his day job? What was your day job back then, by the way? I was after college. A buddy, a college buddy, and I went to film school. We started a, a, a production company. We made trading films for like health and beauty aids companies and very dr dry stuff like that. So, what do you tell that kid who had the balls to start something new? If you had to tell that kid. In 25 years, you're going to be in Paris with Dave Chappelle. What would that kid have said? Besides who the fuck's Dave Chappelle? Because this is 25 years ago. But besides from that. Dave Chappelle, the high school kid. Um, for me, I said to myself at the time, because I recognized that I liked it a lot. And I reckon, and I'd experienced enough loss with my parents and and grandfather and so on dying, my aunt Bess. Like I, I'd experienced enough loss already by the time I was starting comedy at twenty three years of age. I realized that um, it could hurt me if I loved it too much. It could hurt me. The rejection, the the just the grind, and there's a lot of creeps in comedy. It was a rough business. So I said to myself, I put up a, a, force, a, a, a force shield a, 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 to protect myself. And I said to myself, if I do it once on TV, I'll be okay with never doing it again. Hmm. I promised myself I wouldn't let it become everything to me. And I've a couple of times in the last 32 years, my anniversary is coming up. Uh, April Fool's Day will be 33 years. As a comic, um, I, I promised myself that I that 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 I would be in control of it, and it wouldn't control me, and that I would love it and use it and 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 have it bring me joy. You know, I always thought of comedy as a hobby, not a job. I, if I thought of it as a job, I probably would be selling out arenas. But but I always thought of it as a hobby. I never wanted it to be to own me. And, you know, when the pandemic hit and, um, you know, you don't get to do it for a year, it didn't crush me because I remembered what I told myself as a 23-year-old open micer, like, um, that, that if I only did it that one time, I'd be okay. And if it gets taken away from me, I'll survive. So part of it is that. And another part of it is, and I have a big neon, um, uh, sign in my house, in my living room, over the fireplace that says, enjoy the process. And I have to remind myself that all the time. And when young comics ask me about it, I always tell them, you know, you can't just work towards the goals, the money, the accolades. You have to enjoy the ups and downs, you know. When, you're, when your internet goes out right before a live Zoom show or you get rejected or your car breaks down right before a gig or you bomb in front of your 
ex-girlfriend or your ex-agent. You know, you have to have an appreciation for how hard it is and kind of love that. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you funnier. And the life experience that goes into it, you get thick skin and it makes you sort of invincible. And I always think of like, there's no end game with comedy, like, or even show business. Like, you know, Tom Cruise has got everything in the world, but some days he's probably sitting there going, fucking George Clooney, God damn it. You know, there's always somebody doing a little better on any given week. So I go enjoy the process. Never too high, never too low. Sometimes my manager will go, you got the job. Why aren't you jumping up and down? I go, I'll jump up and down when it airs. And then a month later, somebody walks up to me at the mall and goes, you were good on that show. Then I'll be happy. But until then, there's too many things that could go belly up. Um, so I really do try to control my emotions and look at it as a process and not necessarily um, goal-oriented all the time. What was your first TV gig? Do you remember exactly? Oh, man. Star Search, 1992. No, wait, with, with, with Ed? Was, was that out there? This week's challenger, Jeff. And that's when you realize I'm going to change my name. Uh I'm a flight home because I won a couple episodes and I kept advancing. And every time I advanced, Ed McMahon would fuck up my name even more. And when you're Jeffrey Lifshultz, they had to use a different font to get my name on the screen. And I was so embarrassed that my name was so long and everybody else had this big flashy name on their screen. And this is the first time my family seeing me do anything. So um, Star Search was big. I flew down to Florida. I knew I was going to win the contest. I brought two duffel bags worth of clothes. I was there for four days, but I thought I was going to be there for two months to win the whole thing. And um, my buddy Keith Robinson dragged the, the helped me drag the duffel bags into my hotel room because I couldn't afford a bellhop or anything like that. And and he was leaving. He got eliminated, and was and I was coming and. I was so desperate to rehearse, I would go on the little boats to take you from Epcot to the hotels and I'd grab the mic and, and or I'd give the, 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 the Disney worker five bucks to let me conduct the tour just so I could practice my two and a half minute routine before the live taping, just practice saying it. So yeah, it was Star Search, it was Ed McMahon and I credit with Ed with convincing me to go to Jeff Ross, my middle name. Um, as my stage name. Were you scared performing on stage when you first started out? No, I felt free. I was scared to not perform. I was scared to miss out. Every time there's a Saturday night comes around and I don't have a show, I feel like I've wasted a week of my life. Uh, even if I'm at, even if I'm at a wedding or a party or, or whatever it is, like I, 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 I uh, I feel free, the most free when I'm on stage. You know, everybody talks about political correctness and cancel culture and woke comedy, but that all exists on the internet and in real life and in corporate, you know, meetings. But when you're, I'm on stage, I'm like a gunslinger. I don't give a flying fuck about any of that. And I'm just trying to make people laugh and express myself in a way that is pure and I just didn't 
four sold out shows in Salt Lake City this past weekend. Everybody said, oh, those Mormons, blah, blah, blah. They're very conservative. There won't be anybody of color in the audience. I get to my show and it is mixed. It's a very gay friendly city. So you get a very diverse uh, audience. And man, I was just hitting on all cylinders. They didn't, you know, you can't really prejudge audiences anymore. All that stuff we hear about cancel culture and wokeness, that, that exists everywhere but inside those comedy rooms. Those temples of free speech are true safe spaces to let it rip. It's healthy. It's not like it's hate speech. I'm up there making people laugh, laugh at themselves. I'm making fun of myself the most. Um, the other day I said I, I look like if Amazon sold a Jeff Bezos. Oh, I heard that one. Uh -huh. <laughs> And what's so funny is that you use self-deprecation in the kindest and gentlest of ways, because if you can't be self-deprecating and take yourself, if you can't take yourself with a grain of salt, you live your whole life with a chip on your shoulder. Exactly. And there's nothing worse than a bitter person, especially a bitter comic. Like, that is such a turnoff. I'm trying to, to remember who it was. I was watching the Alec Baldwin roast this morning. And by the way, the greatest way to prep for something, when I used to prep for football games and I'm looking at a hundred names times two downs and distance, boring stuff. And what did I do to prep for this? I watched the Alec Baldwin roast. I mean, the greatest prep of all time. <laughs> Who was it that called you the leftover Caitlyn Jenner's penis? <laughs> and then you stood up straight out. And of course, I love you. So I was like, oh, Jeff, no. But you know, uh, I don't remember who said that, but I'm going to I owe that person a thank you. That's pretty it was good. hysterical. <laughs> when did you when did you realize that you could incorporate roasting into comedy? It, it was again another happy accident, Susie. It wasn't me. It was a year where the Friars Club um, was struggling to get celebrities on the, uh, on these shows. They weren't televised yet. They were just this sort of inside showbiz thing in New York and they couldn't get people. Um, they had controversies and so on. And it was like the roasting, it was kind of antiquated. It was like a lost art, like jousting or something. No one really knew what it was outside the walls of the Friars Club in New York, Milton Burrow and Henny Youngman and Buddy Hackett and these guys. So when I realized I could always do a little bit of crowd work. I can make fun of people as they went to the bathroom at the comedy clubs and I was getting good at emceeing. I learned how to do that by emceeing. I'd always want to host shows so that I get to go on in between the comics and talk to the audience. Like I thought that would be good training if I ever hosted a game show or a talk show or whatever. And I think I built some roasting skills so that when I did some private show at a, for the Friars Club at a golf tournament, boom, I already had some skill in how to do that. And when the old guys would make fun of me, I could come back at them and nobody, they were so revered, nobody ever did that. So when I started doing that, they were like, here's a guy who knows where the line is. He respects us, but he doesn't revere us in a way that keeps him from ripping into us. And I got better and better at the roasts and people, I got started to get a reputation as a roaster. So I was like, you know what, why don't I just start mixing that into my stand-up 
So now when I do a show and I'm touring now, I'll do half an hour of whatever I want, stand up stories of the world, talk about whatever I want. And, and then at a certain point I dive into, let's turn the lights on and see who's here and who wants to come up and get roasted and volunteers only. And people inevitably start pointing to each other. And I said, no, 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 that's bullying. You have to raise your own hand. And then people come up and I line them up like a police lineup and just go boom, 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 boom for 15 minutes, roast a dozen people. Um, and it's like a party on stage. And it's a perfect combination of roasting and stand-up. I'll talk about my dog dying uh, for 10 minutes and then seg right into a live speed roast. So it, I like to play with emotions. I like to take people on a little bit of a ride on stage. You know, you have an hour, you can do all sorts of different colors with that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You know, it's funny. One of my favorite things of your Instagram, besides your dogs and when you're doing yoga on your back deck, usually wearing something very skimpy, is how many people send in pictures from all over the world of themselves doing the dumbest things. And they say, Jeff, roast me. Why do you think people like to be roasted so much? That's a great question. That question I get so much. And I don't like it. So I have to try to figure out why people do like it. Like, I'd be a hypocrite if I got sensitive. Obviously, these jokes, like you said, somebody made a joke about me looking like a penis. I'm like, okay, I deserve it. I dish it out. I better be able to take it. And then at the end of my show, I do roast myself sometimes. So I get why it's important to show both sides. But why do celebrities or even my fans want to come on stage and get roasted? Honestly, I have no fucking idea. I wouldn't want to do it in a million years. My only thing I can think about is the ones that have really loved it the most are the biggest egomaniacs. Alec Baldwin, Donald Trump, Bieber. Like, so I think everyone loves to be the center of attention, even if there's a target on their back. It's still an hour and a half all about them. And it's a good way to show your fans, your family, your friends, that you uh, are a person of the people, a man of the people. And you can take a joke. And we live in America where no one is royalty. No one, you can, you can talk smack on anybody. So it's a phenomenon that must go back 
to the early days of man. Why why do people make fun of each other? Is it a way to bond? Is it a way to uh, release tension? Is it a way to build people up? I think when you were talking about mourning and about comedy, and it goes back to that, Rich and I met you right after 9-11. And you were not Jeffrey Ross, Rose Master General yet. I mean, you were building something. You were... You were doing the roast in Manhattan with Rickles and all the giants of comedy who really was like a dad for you. But it was before the roast got so big. We went into you right after 9-11. I don't, I think Rich was there because I was still out in LA and you invited him to do the 9-11 roast. And of course the famous thing that came out of it was too soon, right? Too soon. And we go back again, and you should probably explain the too soon joke. Maybe you could take us there and explain what made that roast just so special. Well, New York was on its heels. New York had been attacked. And nobody ever saw that coming, obviously. It was a sneak attack from terrorists. And, you know, it all reads in the history books now, but when you're actually a mile north of the Twin Towers and you have a, you're a comic. I couldn't help but wonder, is it over? Is comedy kind of dead? Irony and sarcasm. Dave Chappelle and his wife and kid evacuated the Soho Grand and came to my house covered in ash. I found them outside. They ran up a mile, you know, and he was a, you know, also obviously now we're two comedians and, and I called my manager when the phone started working again, Bernie Brillstein, who'd been around for decades. And I said, Bernie, you need to, you know, what, what does this mean for our business? And he was stammering. He just said, I don't know, kid, I don't know. And when the old guys don't know what's happening, now you know you're in uncharted territory. Now you go, well, this is our moment. Now we're going to tell everyone, you know, I'm the young guy in my early 30s at that point. And I go, wow, this is the time to step up. And you're not going to get guidance from the seniors this time. So I thought about it overnight. And, you know, we tried to donate blood and everything, but there was nobody needed any blood. There was not those sorts of injuries. It was everybody who had died in the World Trade Center died immediately. And so now you're just faced with, well, what can I do? What can I do? This is happening all around me. I'm walking around outside like this because, you know, with my with my shirt over my nose because there's human ash uh, floating through New York. And it felt hopeless. But that didn't sit well with me. I'd, I'd already lost my parents. I already understood what hopelessness felt like. And I wrote a letter to Hugh Hefner, the Friars Club, and Comedy Central. This is the early days of email. And I'd already been getting calls from the production saying, you know, we have a roast scheduled um, in a couple of weeks from now, but the Hilton needs to know if we're going, you know, they, they, they want to keep the deposit and if we're not going through with the show, we're going to lose all this money. And I was a junior producer on the show. I was a low-level producer, but I was a big part of the team that, you know, got them together, but I didn't have a lot of experience back then. 
And something just didn't sit well with me with canceling. Hugh Hefner, who, you know, is the very reason terrorists hate us, right? Sexual freedom, First Amendment stuff, you, you know, he, he, he published naked pictures and dirty jokes, and he lived this sort of sexual lifestyle. And it seemed like this is the very definition of the terrorist winning. Before that was a cliche expression. If we cancel the terrorist win, it really felt that way. It was like, they're going to take everything away from us, including our ability to laugh and celebrate what a great country we live in, the First Amendment, free speech. And not only that, but I had Sarah Silverman and Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla and Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert and and Rich and so many of my friends were all planning on being a part of this. And I wrote this letter basically explaining that I thought the, sh the roast must go on. You know, the old show business term. The show must go on. And I said, let's just cancel the after party. Make it a fundraiser for the Twin Towers fund. And we'll, 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 we'll get, we'll put whatever money we have towards getting Hef and his girlfriends and the roasters coming in, Cedric the Entertainer and, 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 and um, Dick Gregory and all these great people had to travel in for it. And that was brave at that point, just getting on a plane. And I convinced everybody to go on with the show. Um, Somewhere I still have that letter. I'm very proud of it. Um, and it worked. It like released this amazing amount of tension and sadness from New York. You know, these roasts aren't just on TV. There's 2,000 New Yorkers packed into the ballroom at the New York Hilton. And you really felt it when Jimmy Kimmel went up there as the host. Started doing some light humor and breaking the ice. And slowly by the end of his set, everybody's kind of laughing and laughing and at the time, the next comic comes up, and the next, I remember Rob Schneider came up second or third, and he was doing fine, but then a joke kind of missed, and then another joke missed, and he's like, you know, uh, and I ran up, and I put, my arm, I put my arm around him, and I said, hasn't there been enough bombing in this city? <laughs> and when I went right to it like that, it was like a huge, it felt, at least for me, a huge relief, like I'd gotten a laugh about the tragedy. And that kind of, I felt like, opened it up. It got bad more and more. And then Jimmy started going in on Hef and his girlfriends a little harder. And, you know, he had seven girlfriends at the time. I said, why does Hef have seven girlfriends? One to put it in, the other six to move him around. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and by the time Gilbert Gottfried went on at the end, all the clever, silly, whatever jokes have been told. So Gilbert was like, fuck it. I'm just going to tell a long, crazy, dirty joke that the terrorists would really hate. A super sexual, crazy joke about the aristocrats, this crazy family of show business people, a family of mother, father, and two kids and a dog that all basically fuck each other on stage. It's the most absurd, crazy thing you've ever heard. Um, and Gilbert goes into it 
But be, as he's going into it, he does this joke where he says, I almost didn't make it here. I, my plane had a connection at the Empire State. Oh, that. <laughs> and somebody yells, too soon. It was a genuine moment from an audience member not set up. It was too soon. And Gilbert's taken aback by that. And usually he's encouraged to go harder. Uh, but we're all laughing. And that's when he grabbed the podium like he was about to blast off into space. And he squinted around. And then he just went into this long, crazy, dirty aristocrats joke. And it brought the house down. You can see footage of it in the aristocrats movie that came out years later where me and Jimmy were all laughing, rolling on the floor. Drew Carey was there. And um, we're laughing so hard. And it's funny because that's the movie that brought Bob and I together years later as friends. Um, but comedy as healing, I think, is a really important thing to talk about and to appreciate. And people forget that. And for what it's worth, the crowds right now, wherever I go, are the best crowds I've ever performed for, whether they're in Paris or Salt Lake or Oxnard. It's like people missed comedy all year. And I think not having it just made them appreciate what it does for them psychologically. I mean, think about it, Susie, like two years of a pandemic, the death rate, the divorce rate, the suicide rate, ask any shrink, it's business is booming. So comedy makes a lot of sense that people would want it more and the audience would be more appreciative than they've ever been. You don't get obnoxious heckling, you don't get random assholes with their cell phones trying to get a moment out of content. All that seems to be gone. And people are really zoned in on the healing powers of laughter. You find your rooms have any partisan break, depending on what jokes you're telling? My, politically, no. Mine don't, because I play, I play it pretty even-keeled. If I make a joke about Donald Trump, Rest assured, it's a joke that Donald Trump's supporters would also probably laugh at, even if it's a criticism, mm -hmm. and it almost always is. Uh, if I make fun of Joe Biden, which I do, uh, it's done in a way that even Joe Biden would laugh at. So you're an equal opportunity and offender, which is very smart. I think so. And if I do have a political agenda, it's implied. It's not overt. Because at the end of the day, you don't get anywhere with a hammer. With me, it's it's about the, the the you know sliding it into somebody's brain without them realizing. And then as they repeat the joke to their friends back home, they start to go, "Oh, there's something behind that, something that informs my political opinions," and they start to get it. Um, I think that's the key to changing people to being persuasive is. Not telling them how it should be, but letting them figure it out on their own because they laughed at something that they can't believe they laughed at. The hypocrisy, like part of being a comedian is like sifting through the bullshit. What's your favorite joke? <laughs> Whichever one's next, babe. <laughs> my, my favorite joke is always the newest joke. You know, so what like, are you working on? What are you uh, working on? Give us a little preview. 
least let me look at my phone for a second. I wrote some down yesterday. Let's see what's on here. A little like here's a little preview. This is a this is what this would be. What would we call this? A um, special just getting started preview. This would be a uh, um, what's the word? It, isn't this the, an exclusive? Right. If we if we if we were on extra, I'd be like, well, Jeffrey Ross has gotten a, an exclusive for us here on just getting started. Sneak peek. Had COVID. Um, it was awful, and uh, I was sick as a dog. But the weirdest part was afterwards, I lost my sense of taste. It got so bad, I went to see Dave Matthews Band at the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> but that's clean for you. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> but it still bites. And Dave, Dave Matthews, uh, I think he would laugh at that. You know, the other thing that I think is interesting that I'd like to share with the, those of you who are listening to Just Getting Started, your humor is filthy. It's filthy. I mean, there are there are moments that are just embarrassing. I mean, there's so much fun because you laugh because you're uncomfortable, right? And you laugh because you can't believe you went there. But you laugh because did he you're saying to yourself, did he just say that out loud? And it's funny, Jeff, because it's the opposite of who you are in real life. You are kind and caring and thoughtful and um, generous and sweet. How do you rationalize the two sides of Jeff Ross? Thank you for that. Um, I don't. I just do it. I don't think, at least I'm told by experts, I wouldn't get away with busting balls if I was burning bridges. If I didn't roast people that I love, I wouldn't be getting away with it. If I found people I didn't like and roasted them, I'd be a different type of entertainer. I don't think that would have legs. I think you, you run out of gas doing that. The secret of it all is if I'm going to roast, and I go through the whole boom, 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 get everybody, Rickle style, and I leave you out, that's the insult. That's the person I don't like. <laughs> if I leave you out of it, you are, like, not important to me. Or I don't think you can take it, or I don't think you're worth mentioning, you know. So to me, I... I find the truth in comedy. I understand that people laugh at honesty, brutal honesty sometimes, but it's also like, of course I'm kidding. If I call somebody, I did a joke in Salt Lake the other night where there was a beautiful couple, beautiful married couple on stage, and I made a joke um, that the woman was not attractive. And her knees buckled with laughter and the whole audience laughed. And the reason they laughed is because they know that I know that she knows she's beautiful. And it's a joke. And it's like, there's no malice behind it. It's meant to be light. 
it's meant to give them a chance to flirt with each other on stage as a married couple, a little spark to the night. You know, there's nothing worse, Susie, when you go to a comedy show and the comic starts talking about the differences between men and women or or uh, or uh, sexual uh, diseases or divorce, like bitterness. Like, I, I come from the Buddy Hackett school of, I want to be the best wingman you know, let's just say it's your anniversary and you ask your husband to go to a comedy show. I want to be the guy that lights you two up so that you, when you see me a year later, you go, oh, my God, that night we saw you. We laughed so hard. We banged all night. and Now I'm pregnant and here's our new baby. You know, it's like that's to me the fun thing, like not like, oh, man, you know, you really you really spoke the truth about men and women that night. Fuck all that. Like I want it to be a party. I want to be the best wingman. I want my show to be sexy and fun and bring people together. I want everyone to leave going, that was fun. I got to do that again. I want whoever listens to this to walk away feeling like they have laughed. They've been inspired and they got some direction. Cause I think everybody needs a little bit of help these days. Everybody needs a push. Everybody needs some guidance and everybody needs somebody to extend a hand to them to say, you're going to be okay. So what would you leave this audience with from your experience getting started? What's your advice? Years and years ago, Dave Chappelle and I were at a comedy festival in Las Vegas. He would remember this too. And it was four in the morning. We were both done shows. The parties were over. We were hungry. And we found a quiet spot in one of the diners in the casino. We were just shooting the shit. And I see some kid who starts walking over. And he wants to talk to us. And Dave, you know, we gave him a little wave over. And he's like, any advice? Same question. You know, I'm just starting out. Any advice? And... Dave said it right away. He said, just keep in mind, you only start out once. And it made a lot of sense to the guy. And I understood where Dave was coming from. It's like, this is the hard part. The starting out, getting started is the hard part. It's also the best part in a lot of ways because the future is wide open. And... It might feel like starting out takes a long time, but that's okay too because you're earning it. You're building up cred. You're building up life experience. You're building up relationships. You're building up everything you need to go the distance. But you only start out once. You can interpret it a million ways, but I think that really stuck with me. It's like it gets better. I'm going to borrow a page from our friend Bob. I'm going to tell you I love you. And I'm so grateful that you did this. Thank you for uh, breaking the ice with me. You were the best way for me to like get back into the chair, get to practice asking questions again. I'm not talking to myself. It's kind of great. But I loved having you on as my first guest, and I'm so grateful. My pleasure. I love you, too. 
Good luck with the podcast. I think it'll be really fun for people to hear these stories from different guests about getting started and all that. You know, I could talk about Bob all day. I could talk about you all day. So thank you for having me. You're a muffin. I'm going to call up all your friends and say, hey, come on and talk about Bob. I think it's a great way for us to to kind of feel warm and fuzzy about him again. And to share, as you said, you can share your pain, but you can also share a laugh. Yeah. Why not? I mean, life's short, you know, and you forget that. Sometimes people just, they're just gone in a second. So you might as well uh, laugh about it because the alternative is crying and You you smear the mascara. It's not a good look. It's not a good look. And you don't want to see me cry in public. It's bad. I look like a Dr. Evil. (laughs) (laughs) Love you, Jeff. Bye, Suze. Lots of love. I hope that you enjoyed this edition of Just Getting Started. Many more where that came from. Looking forward to touching base with you and hearing back from you as well about people that you'd want to hear from, about their origin stories, and how they just got started. Take care, everybody. See you soon. Bye.